morning. Uh, my name is Chris Miller. I'm one of the pastors here at Remedy. So today we are going to be in John chapter 6, verses 30 through 40. Um, so John 6, verses 30 through 40. If you guys would stand with me as we read God's word. We just stand um, just signifying that this is not the words of merely John, the apostle, but it's the Holy Spirit through John, the apostle, the words of God. John six thirty through 40. So they said to him, then what signs do you do that we may be- see and believe you? What works do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus then said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. Let's pray. Father, um, may you show us a greater glimpse of your glory in the face of Jesus today. May, uh, when I talk, when I speak on your words, may the words that I say present Jesus as he really is and not uh, as I've imagined him. Um, And everything that I say that's not in line with your word, I just pray that it would fade away from memory. Lord Jesus, that you would reveal yourself to us today, strengthen our faith, call us to come to you, and remind us that there is security in your arms. And Lord, as we uh, think about others, as we think about the lost, as we think about those who do not know Christ, I pray that you would uh, call us to, to pray, call us to speak truth into their lives, call us to come before you daily, um, pleading with you, the Father who gives a people to Jesus. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So sovereignty and providence are words that properly belong to God in all things. And yet these words kind of have a, a twofold effect. They, they can bring comfort, great comfort to believers, but simultaneously they can actually bring great terror to one's soul. Knowing God's words through Moses, God wrote this through Moses in Exodus, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This places all of salvation solely in the hands of the Lord, our God. And that can be a comfort, because if, you, if we can't do anything to get into the hands of God, we can't do anything to get out 
of the hands of God. So it can bring comfort to our souls. Uh, But it can also bring terror or anguish or even sorrow to our souls when we think of two common objections to the teaching of Jesus' sovereignty, of God's sovereignty in all things. Uh, the, The objection really is one objection, but it takes kind of two different objects. So the first one would be something like, why did God save me? Or a variant form of that same thing, am I really one of God's elect? Right? Uh, Why did God save me? Am I really one of God's elect? What if he hasn't chosen me? What if I'm not elect? What if I'm not one he has been gracious to, not one he's had mercy upon? The, The second objection to God's sovereignty is very similar, but it changes the object and it points it outward. Why does God not save them? Why, why, does, why did he not choose my fill-in-the-blank family member and bring them to Christ? Why has he not saved my kids? What about my friends? What about the Sasak tribe in Indonesia? What about the, the Tajik of Tajikistan? What about the Hindus of, Indon- or of India? Why, why has God not saved them? These objections are personified throughout history in many individuals. Uh, I'll I'll give two examples. Uh, We can take William Cooper, who was, it's spelled Cowper, like C-O-W-P-E-R, which always confuses me. But William Cooper, he's a brilliant Christian poet and hymn writer, but a description of his life, as I was reading um, in an article, he's plagued by panic attacks and depression all throughout his life. He often questioned whether or not he was one of God's chosen people. One night, it got so bad that he became convinced that God wanted him to take his own life, and he tried three times to commit suicide, and each time he was thwarted. What if I am not elect? Why did God save me? Or we could take Monica, the, the, Berber, uh, the Berber woman, the mother of Augustine, uh, of Hippo from North Africa, um, who spent many tearful days, years, and nights crying out to the Lord for Augustine, her son, to come to Jesus because he had rejected his parents' faith and had kind of walked out on his own um, two legs. So why not them? Why not my son, she might say, whom I love, O Lord? Why not save Augustine? Why not have mercy on him? So I brought this up because in today's text, sovereignty of God and salvation is at the forefront, the the central core of what we're going to talk about. We're going to see how God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit work together for our salvation and our good. And we're also going to see the the wide open arms of Christ to all who come to him. And we'll see the eternal security that is found in his arms He will not lose any that are in his hands. So a few notes before we dive in about the text. Our text structure has a repeated word, the word come, C-O-M-E. It's repeated five times. The the first and the last time, it's referring to Jesus coming to earth in his incarnation. So verse 33 and 38, you'll find the phrase comes down from heaven. Jesus coming down from heaven and earth in the incarnation, becoming a man to give his life. 
The other three are in between there, and they are marked off by come to me. And it's talking about people coming to Jesus for life. And so we see these kind of two comings. So the past two sermons, uh, Pastor Joe and Pastor David, have taught us that Jesus is the better Moses in many ways. He, he provides bread like manna from heaven. He crosses over the Jordan, much like the Red Sea, though instead of parting it and walking on dry land, he just walks on the sea as if it's dry land. Um, he tells uh, his disciples who were scared when they see him walking on the water, he literally proclaims, I am to them, which is a callback to Moses's Uh, where God reveals to Moses his covenant name from the burning bush. So this greater Moses is also the I am who called Moses to his task. Um, And the themes of Moses' bread and I am are doubled down in our text today. They're amplified in our text today. So we're going to look at four teachings from the text, um, and then we'll look at these two objections that I mentioned just a minute ago with, William Cooper and Monica, we'll look at that at the end. So today we're going to see that the true source of the bread from heaven is God the Father. We're also going to see that Jesus himself is the bread from heaven. And then we're going to to see the surety that we have in the arms of Christ. And then finally, we're going to see the will of God in regards to salvation. So let's look at our first point. This is going to come from 30 through 33. Our heavenly bread comes from God alone. Our heavenly bread comes from God alone. So John writes in 30 through 33, So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world end quote so it's funny if you look back at 29 right before our text Jesus tells them what the work of God is he says the work of God is believing in the one whom God sent aka you want to be doing the works that are approved by God believe in me because God sent me to you. That's the work of God. And it, it's kind of funny because they twist this statement and they essentially turn it back on Jesus and they say, well, if you want us to do the work of God, you need to do a work for us. You need to perform a sign. You need to do work. It's almost like they're saying, come on, Jesus, do something so that we can do God's work. Don't you want us to do God's work? Well, in order for us to do God's work, you have to work. Now, the irony of it is, in a real sense, it's very true. In order for us to do God's work, Jesus does have to work, but they don't mean it that way at all. They mean it more to kind of fill their bellies uh, with more bread. If you look at verse 26, this crowd that is with Jesus, they are there simply to get more bread for their bellies. They're, They're not there for eternal life. They're not there to believe in the one whom God sent, but they just want more bread. And to kind of end their speech to Jesus, they give the the chef's kiss, which is the ultimate irony. They quote a psalm to him. 
You see, Jesus, you need to be doing the work. Why? Because as it is written, and then they quote the Bible to him. They quote Psalm 78, 24. Um, now, this quote, D.A. Carson points out, this quote also echoes Nehemiah 9.15, which is a reference to God's provision of manna from heaven. It also echoes the Exodus 16 chapter, where is the, it's kind of the OG chapter of where God provides manna from heaven. But ultimately, it's Psalm 78.24, and it says, And he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them bread from heaven. Thus ends the short speech of the crowds. You want us to do the works of God, Jesus, you need to provide some bread. Because if you're really greater than Moses, Moses gave us bread. Now Jesus answers this prodding uh, of the, the crowds with his interpretation of Psalm 78. And it highlights their mistake. So first, he rejects the premise that Moses was the one who provided uh, the Hebrews bread. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. See, they quoted Psalm 78, 24, and it seems like they must have put Moses in the place of the first person pronoun, he. He, he gave them bread from heaven. And they insert in the he, Moses. But if you actually go back and read Psalm 78, it's not Moses who provided the bread. It's God. It's specifically God who gave the bread. So they quote Psalm 78, 24, put Moses in the place of God, but it's actually God himself. Now, I want to read Psalm 78, 18 through 24, because you'll see the irony of how bad of a quote this was to say to Jesus in this particular moment of time. So Psalm 78, 18 through 24 says this, they tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. It's exactly what the crowd's doing again. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded in all of that, in light of all of that, yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain or the bread of heaven. It's bad quotation to send back to Jesus because quite literally the Israelites, the Jews in front of Jesus are doing the exact same thing that the Jews in the Exodus story are doing to God. They're asking God for a sign so that they can fill their bellies. They're not trusting in God, and they're not trusting in his saving power. So Jesus continues interpreting Psalm 78 and, verse, and, and John 6, verse 33. He says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He tells us that God has given bread, and it is he who comes down from heaven and he gives life to the world. And there's a kind of double transition that goes on here. So he goes from this idea of bread 
And now he seems to be edging towards the fact that this bread isn't bread, but it's a person that God gave. So he's starting to indicate, I'm the bread. But the second transition here is, note: it's no longer just for the Jews in the wilderness. He says it gives life to the world. This bread is for the world. It's for everyone, right? This phraseology, uh, sorry, this, this word bread of God, D.A. Carson points out something pretty uh, significant in my mind. Uh, bread of God in the Old Testament, that phrase stands for the show bread in the tabernacle or the temple, or also known as the bread of presence. You can see this, this phrase, bread of God, standing for the showbread in Leviticus chapter 21, I think five different times. Um, but the showbread in the tabernacle was 12 loaves of bread that were placed in the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. And uh, each day they would change it out and they would put 12 more loaves in. And the priests could eat the old loaves uh, as they're replacing it. And it stood for, it represented God sustaining the 12 tribes of Israel through their time and being their bread. Um, And it also represented Israel's worship of God, right? Their offering to him. And so it's significant here that Jesus is saying that bread is a person, and he's about to say that person is me. I am the one who sustains you in the wilderness. I am the one who can sustain you now. I am the bread from heaven. So the imagery there is significant. Now, I told you, too, it also, the other transition is he starts to move from just the Jews out into the world. This is shown more clearly in John 10, 16, where Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Gentiles, the nations, the world. His bread is not merely for the Israelites, but it's for the world. It's for the nations here. So here Jesus, in summary, is starting to indicate that the bread is a person, and that's our next point. But in summary, God, the Father, is the source of the bread, right? And so it goes right into his next point. Jesus is the bread of life come from heaven, he is the bread of life, because in 34 through 35, this is, they, they say something to him, and he responds. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So like Nicodemus of John chapter 3, and like the Samaritan woman of the well in John chapter 4, these crowds didn't understand Jesus' words. They took them over literally. They were looking for an actual loaf of bread in which if they ate it, they would never hunger and they would never thirst again. Uh, John 3, Nicodemus says, uh, Can a, a man be born again a second time from his mother's womb? Obviously not. Uh, the Samaritan woman, when offered the well of living water, the water of life, she says, Give me this water so I never have to come back up to this well again. And now here the crowds are, give us this bread, always. Now, note the word, sir. Again, more irony. This word, sir, is the word for Lord. It's kurios. It's the word for Lord. And so, quite literally, they're saying, Lord, give us this bread, always. Now, the irony here is what they mean by Lord is they just mean it respectfully. 
hence the ESV's translation, sir. But the irony is, the New Testament writers, and even Jews when they wrote in, in Greek, when they were going to talk about Yahweh, the, the covenant name of God given to Moses from the burning bush, they used the Greek word, kurios, Lord, to stand in its place. In Hebrew, they would use Adonai, which is another word for Lord. And so the irony here is the crowds are calling him Lord, but they don't mean at all half of what really belongs to Jesus with that title. And the irony is completed when Jesus then says, I am the bread of life. And this is one of our uh, John's famous seven I am statements. So throughout the book of John, and this is the first one, so I get to unwrap this for you firstly. It was first here. You heard it here first. Um, the I am statements, are, they play kind of a twofold significance. First, the, the statement, I am, he's referring back to the Moses burning bush story, which we've said several times now. He's making the claim that I am Yahweh. I am that I am. That's what Jesus is saying here. The second thing that these I am statements have is they always attach to a descriptor telling us something more about who Jesus is. So I'll list off the seven that we'll see in John. So we have this one, I am the bread of life. We have, I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door of the sheep. I am the true vine. I am the resurrection and the life. And I am the light of the world. Each one of these statements, Jesus is claiming divinity with I am, but he's also claiming something about himself. Right? So for divinity-wise, the, the irony is here. You're calling me Lord, but you should be calling me Lord, all caps, L-O-R-D. I am that I am. I am the one who called Moses, whom you're comparing me to. I am the one that sent bread in the wilderness and sustained Israel throughout all of the Old Testament. I am God. I am your God. Right? But he also makes this second phrase, bread of life. Now, what I love about the Gospel of John, this is something uh, an old professor of mine, Professor McWilliams, used to say when teaching the Gospel of John. He said, it's deep enough for an elephant to drown in, and it's shallow enough for a little child to splash around and have fun and be safe. It's deep enough for an elephant to drown, shallow enough for a child to splash around, kind of have a little kiddie pool moment. So it's deep. Because I am, where's the deepness of that? It connects to the, the many bread passages in the Old Testament, the manna from heaven. It connects to the, the fiery bush that calls Moses and says, I am that I am. There's lots of deepness that we can go into this. But at its base level, it's still understood by every single person of every single culture, of every single time in history. I am the bread of life. We all are born with the innate understanding that when I'm hungry, I need food. When I'm hungry, I need food. Children are born hungry. I'm convinced of this. And it doesn't go away. Like, my, my, Roland, my five-year-old, at 6.30 a.m. on most days, will come into my room and say, I'm hungry. And usually it's not just I'm hungry, I'm starving. To which I then, you know, quickly... Hold him. Oh, Roland, you're starving. Just be, it'll be one second. I'll get you some cereal. We're born hungry. 
were born hungry. And Jesus here is using something that every culture for all time can understand. Every culture for all time and for all time in the future, I'll be a prophet, for all time in the future, they have to eat if they want to continue to live. And Jesus here is making a very simple claim. I am the sustenance, the food of your soul. If you want true life, if you want eternal life, you must eat me. You must believe in me. So children, adults alike, every time your stomach growls, it's simply reminding you, yes, you're hungry for food, but it should remind you also that your soul craves Jesus. It craves sustenance. We were built for eternal life. So beyond the I am statement, Jesus gives a very simple description of salvation here in verse uh, 35. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. So faith and belief are used over a hundred times. It's the most used word, pistos. It's the most used word in John. And the reason is, is he's very concerned that we understand what true faith is and what not true faith is, right? Um, Scott calls it easy believism, is the not true faith. And so here, John's telling us something else about true faith. Here, believing is coming. True faith manifests itself in a person who goes to Jesus for life. They come to Jesus for life. Much like the Israelites had to eat the manna in order to keep on surviving. There might also be some parallels kind of underneath this text as well from Proverbs and Isaiah. Proverbs 9.5 says this, it's, it's wisdom speaking out, which Jesus is the wisdom of God. Come, eat my bread and drink the wine that I've mixed. Or God cries out in Isaiah 51, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. And so there's a very simple statement being made about true saving faith. True saving faith is faith that brings someone to Jesus. They come before Jesus for life. But there's something really cool here, and it's an SAT vocabulary word of the day. I had to learn this word because I didn't know about it. It's called a litates or a litates. Okay? This is a literary device. I'm going to read the dictionary definition for it. Uh, a litates is an understatement, especially that in which an affirmative is expressed by the negative of its contrary. So an example would be, that wasn't bad at all. What you mean by that is, that was pretty good. Or another example, if you said, he's no dummy, you mean, that person's pretty intelligent. So you're expressing something positive by using a negative. Um, this device is used in this text right here. So when you see, they shall not hunger, and they never will thirst, there's a double negative in the Greek initiating this litatis. And what it's actually saying, it's not just merely saying they're not going to hunger and they're not going to thirst, but he actually means quite the opposite of what it's saying. They will always feast. They will always drink. They will always be sustained. That's what he's saying here. So the one who comes to me, the one who believes in me, will always have food and will always have drink in me. 
So William Hendrickson, a commentator, puts it this way. Uh, this is stating about Jesus. Those who believe in Jesus, they will receive complete and enduring spiritual satisfaction. Another commentator backs this up, summarizing, the bread of life points us to the ever-satisfying nature of Jesus Christ. The ever-satisfying nature of Jesus Christ. And so, if you're here today and you haven't believed in Jesus, look again at those words. He says the one who comes to him, the one who believes in him, will forever be satisfied through him, through his provision. Jesus is the only one who can truly and finally satisfy us. Jesus is our bread from heaven given to us by God to bring us life. So let's look at the third. Another uh, litatis is coming up in the third one. Um, you got to write that word down. It's L-I-T-O-T-E-S, litatis. Okay, third point. Jesus forever keeps all who come to him. And this is 36 through 37. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, end quote. So Jesus is giving us an explanation, seems to be explaining why it could be perceived that his ministry is failing. Why, why, are, why are people not, why is it not working, essentially? Um, You'll see this later on in verses 41 through 65. He continues this bread speech. It goes wrong from the outward looking in. It looks like it's gone wrong because in verse 66, this is the end of his speech. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Whatever you just did, Jesus, didn't work. You just persuaded many of your disciples to walk away from you. So Jesus is actually going to give us the explanation before that even happens of why many walked away from him and why it, it could look like his ministry is failing, but it's not, right? Or in, another way of saying it is, look at verse 36. You have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Why is it that some can see Jesus and yet not believe in Jesus? And he gives us the answer. 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So he responds to this by stating two truths, highlighting yet again the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, that they are the, the context of our salvation, that our salvation is very much in the middle of God's love for his Son and his Son's love for him. So those who come to Christ, so the first truth is this, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Those who come to Christ in a saving way, in a believing way, come to him ultimately because the Father gave them to him. Or as uh, John Bunyan says, the Father gives people to the Son. One of the gifts that the Father gives is people to the Son. So the second truth is found in the next part. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So our salvation here is sandwiched between the love of God the Father toward Jesus, and the love of Jesus toward his Father in receiving and keeping the gift that his Father gives him. So the Father is giving him a people, Jesus is receiving the people, and he's keeping them. And that's our salvation. That's how Jesus here is describing it. 
Now, what about the Holy Spirit? Because we have the Son and the, the Father. Where's the Spirit's role in all this? Jesus already covered this in John chapter 3, verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Or later on in verse 8 of the same chapter, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Right? So the Father gives the people to the Son. The Spirit enables the people to come to the Son, and the Son forever keeps the people in himself. That's, that's salvation and the work of the Trinity in our salvation. And we need to really swim here a bit because I'll give one example. John Bunyan, a Puritan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, wrote an entire book on verse 37 alone. The whole book, verse 37. It's called uh, Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. Very good book, so you should read it. Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. Uh, so a couple things that Bunyan pointed out to me in this book. Note in verse 37, the all in the first half becomes individualized in the second half. The all becomes whoever or the one who comes, right? And so it's at first God gives all that the Father gives me, right, will come to me. And then it individualizes, and whoever comes to me, I will forever keep, or I will not cast out, right? I will never cast out. So John Bunyan says this, by it, talking about this shift from general to particular, or all to an individual, he says, by it, Christ looks back to the gift of the Father, not only in the lump and the whole of the gift, but to the every him and her of that lump. As if he said, I do not only accept the gift of my Father in general, but have a special regard to every one of them in particular, and will secure not only some or the greatest part, but every him, every particle of God's gift. So what we should say is, he saves all that the Father gives to him, but dear believers, dear individuals, he saves you. He saves you. Jesus saves you individually, not just generally as a lump. Bunyan also points out the future tense of all that the Father gives to me will come to me. He points this out and he says it's an absolute promise with no condition to be found on the human side of things. No condition to be found on the human side side of things. He says, let the best master of arts on earth show me, if he can, any condition in this text, depending upon any qualification in us, which it is not by the same promise concluded that it shall be by the Lord Jesus affected in us. So essentially, who can come? There's no qualification that bars you from coming to Christ that's found within yourself. There's no sin that's barring you from coming to Christ that's found within yourself. He, he writes it this way, but I am a great sinner, you say. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am an old sinner, you say. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. I am a hard-hearted sinner, you say. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I'm a backsliding sinner, you say. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I've served Satan all my days, you say. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I've sinned against light, you say. I will in no wise cast out, 
says Christ, but I have no good thing to bring with me, you say. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. That we might run to Jesus. That when we realize our own sinfulness, that, we might, that might be even more reason to come to him. Because he in himself alone provides everything we need for salvation and life. So we have another litotes or litotes. We have another one here. I will never cast out. Again, it's the double negative, so it symbolizes, it signals the litotes. And Bunyan even translates it as, I will welcome. That's what Jesus is saying. But I don't think, I think that's true. I don't think it goes far enough. The commentators pointed this out, D.A. Carson pointed this out, the idea of casting out implies that you had it in, right? And so you're literally throwing something out. So what is the opposite of throwing something out? It's not merely that you're welcoming everyone who comes to you, but rather you're keeping in everyone who comes to you. It's the opposite of throwing. You're keeping it in. You're closing it, uh, you're closing it away, right? And so this has the meaning of, I will never cast out should be read as, I will forever keep in. Jesus is the forever keeper of all who come to him. Now, an objection can immediately be raised. But I know people who have come to Jesus and have left him and have not returned. I have friends who've, who I would have bet my house on that they were in Christ and they left him. Right? That's the objection. In fact, if you, don't, if you remember verse 66, I already mentioned this. Many disciples left Jesus and no longer walked with him. So are, is Jesus keeping them too? So I, I agree with this objection. And so we're really left with two options in our text. Either Jesus is wrong, so he's lying, he's mistaken, he's, he's crazy, right? He's, he's wrong about what he just said. Or those who have walked away never truly came to Christ, never truly believed, never truly ate the bread of life, never truly drank the living water. So how does one really know if someone has come to Jesus? They will never leave him because he will forever keep them. Why? Because in Jesus' own words, I will never cast out. All that the Father gives to Jesus will die in the arms of Christ, will live and die in the arms of Christ. Which brings us to this fourth point. God's will, and I realize this uh, grammatically looks weird, the will of God procures our salvation through to the last day. It's the will of God that brings about our salvation and sees it through to the last day, 38 through 40. So, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So verse 38, Jesus affirms that he's not doing his will, but rather everything that he does, he's doing the Father's will. It's God the Father's will that Jesus is doing in front of us. 
And then in 39 and 40, we get two sides of the same coin, which we could deem as our salvation. Two sides of the same coin. In 39, we see it from the point of view of God and through the lens of sovereignty. And then in 40, we see it through the point of view of man, through the lens of human choice. So 39, through the sovereignty lens, it reads this way. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus loses none of the people whom God the Father gave to him. And so it's just re restating verse 37. God gives Jesus a people. Jesus doesn't lose that people, but he forever keeps them in. So this is from the vantage point of sovereignty of God. And it says, it tags it on, it seals this with a great promise, but I'll raise it up on the last day. So it's not just saying I won't lose them today or tomorrow. I won't lose them until the last day when I actually raise them up into glory. So let's look at the other point of view, the, the, the human point of view in verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Those who are given by the Father and forever kept by Christ until the last day are those who look at Jesus and choose to believe and to walk with Jesus. Both of those things are put side by side because sovereignty and choice are not contradictory, but they're two rails on the same railroad track going to the same place. God works. His sovereignty works through choice. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And again, it's sealed by the same promise, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, there's a helpful expression that sticks with me from a Christian rapper that I once heard named Cannon. So I hope he, he helps you too. He says it this way, gotta make a U-turn, talking about repentance, you gotta make a U-turn. Gotta make a U-turn, and if you turn, you'll see the one who turns. He captivates 39 and 40 very well in that, in that rhyme. We all have to repent. We have to turn back and follow Christ. And when we do turn, we actually see the one who turned us. And that's God the Father through Jesus Christ. So God's will is the source of our salvation, and it is an absolute, unchangeable, unshakable promise. Jesus will raise us up, all who have given, who have been given to him from his father. So there's much rejoicing because if you can't get into God's hands, you can't get out of God's hands. It's not conditioned upon our works. It's conditioned upon God's grace, his mercy upon us. So there's, there's much to be thankful for in that. But I mentioned in the intro that this teaching is also a source of anguish and sorrow. And, and it took me all the way up until this week to finally realize that's because it's supposed to be a source of sorrow and anguish as well. So I want to look back at our, our two historical people, William Cooper and Monica, and I want to ask, what did they do, right? What did they do with these objections? So William Cooper, am I elect? I'm doubting that I'm saved, right? 
he moved in with a retired pastor named Morley Unwin and his wife. When that pastor died, he then moved in with John, or sorry, yeah, John Newton. He's the guy that wrote Amazing Grace, the hymn Amazing Grace. Newton gave much encouragement to William Cooper, and they together penned and wrote, that's what penned means, uh, what became known as the Olney Hymns. Cooper combated this objection of not, uh, of am I really saved by moving and pressing into Christian community and writing and speaking and singing Christian truth for the rest of his life. It, it didn't, it, he, he still had depression, he still had doubts, but he pressed into community and he pressed into truth. He wrote, one of the most famous hymns that he wrote was, There is a fountain filled with blood. I'll read the first two stanzas. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. In the second stanza, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away, which is not what Cooper wrote in the second stanza. It makes me upset. His original second stanza is better. Here's his original second stanza. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there have I, as vile as he, washed all my sins away. I have washed my sins away in Christ, in his wounds. He still had depression. He still struggled. He clung to Christ until his death by singing the truth and fellowshipping with the saints. What about Monica, who's praying for her lost son? What did, what did she do? Um, she spent a good portion of her life praying day and night for Augustine. And then, you know, happy ending, Augustine actually becomes a Christian. And near her death, Augustine has a conversation for her, and this is what she said to him. Son, for myself, I have no longer any pleasure in anything in this life. What I want here further and why I am here, I know not. Now that my hopes in this world are satisfied, there was indeed one thing for which I wished to tarry a little in this life, and that was that I might see you a Christian before I died. My God has exceeded this abundantly. She pressed into prayer, and that's what she's known for. Augustine, one of the greatest minds in Western civilization, had a mom who prayed for him every single day, and he came to Christ. Now, Romans 9, I mentioned Romans 9 at the beginning. It, it provides many intellectual, theological answers to the objections. Am I saved? What about those who are not saved? God, why not save them? It, it provides very straightforward intellectual answers. But again, it wasn't until this week that I realized it also provides something more along the lines of our affections. Romans 9, 1 through 3 is Paul's heart in light of this very objection, why not them? And he says this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul, in light of God's sovereignty, 
Not only did he rejoice because of his salvation, he had anguish and great sorrow. And he even wished himself to be cut off from Christ that someone else might be brought in, that his family might be brought in. So what should we do with the sorrow and the unceasing anguish? We should take a, 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 you know, a page out of the book of our brother and our sisters, uh, a page out of their book, uh, press into one another, community, sing and speak God's truth to one another, and pray to him who gives people to Jesus. If it's the Father who gives and the Spirit who enables and the Son who forever keeps, then we ought to bring our great sorrow and our unceasing anguish to him, and we ought to ask him to give people to Jesus. So as John 1.18 says, Jesus is the only begotten God who's in the Father's bosom, I commend to you, take your prayers to the very heart of God. Take your anguish and your sorrow to the bosom of the Father. Take your prayers to Christ. Let's pray. Father, um, you give us what we need, and you provide everything that we need in Jesus. I pray that our faith today would be strengthened, and that today we would believe in Christ, we would eat and we would drink and we would be satisfied in your son. I'm always amazed when I think of eternity that you have always had satisfaction in your son and your son has always been satisfied with you and the spirit's always been satisfied with the father and the son and that you, father, shared your son with us that we might also always be satisfied in him. So I pray today that we would see Jesus as he really is and we would sing to him with much thanks on our hearts. And we would sing to him if we have great sorrow and we have unceasing anguish in our hearts as well. We lay these things before you and we ask that you would save the lost, save the people that are on our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.